The reading is from Isaiah chapter 11 and the first four verses. Just reign of the branch. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes but what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the make of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Thank you, Dagmar. Um, it's a privilege today to welcome Pastor Keith uh, Vethart to bring us uh, the message today. And um, I might just pray for you, Keith, before, you, before we get started. Lord God, we thank you, uh, as we've said, that you speak to us, your dear children, in such clear ways and such relevant ways. Lord, I just ask your blessing on the message that you've put on Keith's heart, Lord, that he may, that through him you may speak clearly to each of us, uh, that we may know you more clearly uh, and know your uh, words for this point in our lives as individuals and collectively as a church. In your name I pray this. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Michael. It's, uh, it's good to be here. We, um, we come here fairly regularly now because in Nary we only have a morning service once a month. And I love this church. You know, th this church reflects, I think, the heart of Jesus. You're not putting all your money into building a beautiful cathedral or having expensive paid staff. You've got wonderful staff, but I'm sure they're not executives. And... Uh, you're putting your money into doing the things that I believe Jesus would want you to do. You know, somebody asked me the other day, Keith, what does it feel like to get older? And I said, I feel like I'm about 20 until I get up. <laughs> but, you know, one of the advantages of being older is that you gain a little bit of wisdom. You know, when I was a young man, I didn't have all that much wisdom especially when it related to doing things like buying birthday presents for your wife. Yeah, I used to love getting a circular saw as a birthday gift. I thought it was a wonderful birthday gift. So I thought my wife, my beautiful wife who's here this morning, would love to get a vacuum cleaner for her birthday. <laughs> and I discovered that that wasn't the go. Yeah, men and women are very, very different. Men and women are very, very different. But one of the best gifts I ever got for my birthday is coming up on the screen. It was a chainsaw. And that's a Shindawa professional 600 chainsaw that can cut down anything. The problem with having a chainsaw is that when you've got one, you want to cut things down. <laughs> and we had this beautiful big fig tree in our backyard. And Chiska said to me, I think that might need pruning. Well, if you've ever used a powerful chainsaw on a soft wood like a fig tree, guess what happens? 
Let's have a look at the next slide. Um, it was a beautiful big tree. And actually, I took that picture and put it to, to show my grandchildren because when I pruned the fig tree and there was nothing but a couple of stumps left, my grandkids came up to me and said, Opa, what have you done? We loved climbing in that tree and you've cut it all down. I said, don't worry, kids. It'll grow again. I'm sure that if you wait, a shoot will come forth from that tree. And sure enough, can you see the little shoots that are coming forth from those bare branches? And this, of course, reminds us of what we have here in Isaiah chapter 11. It says, A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. You know, Jesse, of course, was the father of David. And this is Isaiah's way of talking about the kingdom of David. And David was the head of a mighty kingdom. You know, think of the kingdom in the time of David, in the time of Solomon. It was a great oak tree. It was a huge tree. But now, in the time that Isaiah is prophesying about, there's nothing left but a stump. Nothing left but a stump. What happened? Why did God cut down this mighty oak tree, this great kingdom? Why did he cut it down so that there was absolutely nothing left? Well, Isaiah gives us the answer. If we turn to Isaiah chapter 1, and I'll just read it to you. In Isaiah chapter 1, we read this in verse 4. It says this in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption, they have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel. You see, one of the reasons God cut down that huge oak tree, the kingdom of David, why it was left as nothing but a withered stump, a withered root, was the people of Israel spurned God. They turned their backs on God. I remember years ago reading uh, the uh, Gulag Archipelago, about the Gulag Archipelago by, by Solzhenitsyn. And he said an old woman came up to him one day and said, said to him, the reason Russia is in trouble is because we've turned our backs on God. That's what happened to Israel. They turned their backs on God. But that's not all they did. In Isaiah 3 verse 14, we read this. Isaiah 3 verse 14, it says this. The Lord enters into judgment against the elders and leaders of his people. It is you who have ruined my vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, declares the Lord Almighty. People of Israel did two things as we read Isaiah. They turned their backs on God and they turned their backs on the poor. They ground the faces of the poor into the dirt. And God chopped down that mighty oak tree so there was nothing left but a stump. But of course we know, as we continue to read in Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, we know that even in that desolate, dried up, desiccated stump, there was hope. Isaiah 53 verse 1. You know, has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. Tender shoot. You know, we actually had to put a sign on our fig tree for the grandkids saying, please do not climb. Because those shoots that come from that dry stump, they're really tender. You know, a child's... But out of that dry shoot came Jesus. 
And now in Isaiah 11, we read on and it says this. It says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. The spirit of the Lord, and I'll ask for another slide now. And I don't know if you know what this is. This is the Jewish candlestick, the menorah, the menorah. You'll notice that it's got a central candle, and then it's got three on each side. So there are seven. When Isaiah talks about Jesus, he's actually... He's describing the menorah. You'll notice that it's exactly the same. There in verse 2, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on him. That is the central candlestick. And then he's got two pairs. Uh, he's got three pairs, of, of, t- three pairs of, of things. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Spirit of wisdom and understanding. That's two candlesticks. The Spirit of counsel and power. Another two. And the Spirit of knowledge and candlesticks surrounding the central one. And what is being described here is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus. Because the menorah, that candlestick, was a symbol of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God. It burned olive oil and it burned continually in the temple, signifying that God was present. So here we read in Isaiah 11 that this this Jesus, who had come from the stump of Jesse, this Jesus who had been born... Of a, of a refugee girl and a, and a husband who had come from the far-flung back blocks of Israel in a land that was surrounded, that was surrounded by enemies, a small enclave, a withered stump. This Jesus would come from there. And it fascinates me that the Jewish people still celebrate this menorah or a miracle concerning this menorah every year in December before Christmas. It's almost like the Jewish Christmas. They celebrate Hanukkah. And Hanukkah relates to the fact that a couple of hundred years before the birth of Christ, the Syrians had overtaken the temple. And what they did is they desecrated the altar and they poured pig's blood everywhere. Yeah, can, can you imagine what, how the Jewish people felt? And then the Syrian emperor decided that everybody had to worship the same God. Nobody was allowed to worship any other God. And so he bailed up this priest, this Jewish priest, and told him on the pain of death he had to worship the the Syrian gods. He wasn't allowed to worship Yahweh, the true God of Israel. And his soldiers bailed up this priest and his sons, but they rebelled. And uh, they escaped into the forests and they started the Maccabean Revolution. And within, I think it was 30 years, they'd actually retaken Jerusalem. And they'd retaken the temple. And they cleansed the temple. And they lit the menorah. But there was only one day's supply of olive oil. One day's supply of olive oil. But miraculously, it burned for eight days until they could replenish the olive oil to feed this candlestick. You know, the Jewish people celebrate this as a wonderful victory, and they celebrate it as a sign of the provision of God. Although when I was researching this, I discovered that modern Jews, of course, don't believe that part of it, you know, which is rather not surprising, I guess. They just celebrate the victory, but they don't celebrate God's provision. But you see, here we have the people of Israel being blessed, and here we have Jesus being described as having the Spirit of God poured out upon him. 
You know, it's good for us to know that when Jesus did his work on earth, he did it because he was anointed by the Spirit of God. Yeah, when Jesus starts his ministry, he talks about the Spirit of God anointing him to preach good news to the poor. When Jesus did his miracles, he did them because the Spirit of God was upon him. And that same Holy Spirit is upon you and upon me. If you believe in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit in you, without a doubt, without contradiction. You cannot believe in Jesus and be a follower of Jesus without having the Holy Spirit in you. And that same Holy Spirit that is in you is the Spirit of God that was poured out upon Jesus. And that's why in John 14, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, the miracles that you see me do, you're going to do even greater miracles when I pour out my Holy Spirit from heaven. You see, Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit to do his work. And we are anointed by the Holy Spirit in the same way. The question is, what sort of work did Jesus do? What flowed out of his anointing by the Holy Spirit? And this is where I find Isaiah 11 truly fascinating because it's so contrary to what we might expect to read there. And I'm reading here from the NIV. It says, this Jesus, anointed by the Holy Spirit, it says he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. Let's have the next slide because we've got a list there of those things that Jesus does and we can just leave this up for a while he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes was that true was Jesus really like that that he didn't judge with what he saw with his eyes well think of when Jesus was coming out of a town and he saw a guy called Zacchaeus up in a fig tree this one hadn't been chopped down as a matter of fact I don't know if you realize but fig trees were considered by the Pharisees to be unclean and they weren't allowed to be planted within the boundaries of a town and the reason for that was fig trees have got such a dense canopy that they provide shelter and so the all the sinners and the outcasts would gather under the fig trees so they were considered to be a house of sinners and here's Zacchaeus up in this fig tree outside the town why was he there because everybody saw him as a traitor, as a cheat, as a thief, as someone who was in charge of collecting taxes for Rome, not just collecting taxes, but supervising the collection of other tax collectors. He was the worst of the worst. When Jesus saw him, did he judge him by what he saw? Did he judge him by what people thought of him? No, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down, because I'm going to have lunch with you today. Lunch was to say, I accept you. I want to have fellowship with you. Highly offensive to everybody around, but that's what Jesus was like. You know, on the other side of that same town of Jericho was Bartimaeus, son of filth. He was born blind because his mother was a prostitute and he wasn't allowed inside the city either. He was outside the city and he was begging. You know, normal beggars could beg in front of the the synagogue or in front of the temple because it was quite an honourable profession but not Bartimaeus he was a son of filth so he was outside the city and Jesus looked at him and when Bartimaeus came towards him when he responded to the cry when Jesus responded to his cry Jesus son of God have mercy on me guess what Jesus did he got Bartimaeus to follow him he didn't judge by what he saw he didn't see a blind son of filth, but he saw a child of the kingdom.
The other side of the city, when he saw Zacchaeus, he didn't see a cheat and a thief, but he saw a son of God, a precious human being made in the image of God. It's very easy for us to judge by what we see with our eyes. I remember when I was a young pastor, we had the deacons go and visit a family because somebody had told us that they didn't have enough money to buy food. And uh, that was not very usual in those days. Anyway, the deacons went to visit this family and they came back to a family's home and they had a brand new colour TV. Well, in the 70s, a brand new colour TV was worth a fortune. You know, you'd, you'd pay a lot of money for a brand new colour TV. As a matter of fact, most people couldn't even afford to buy one outright. You had to buy it on the never-never, on higher purchase. And you ended up paying a lot of your income to buy this colour TV. We don't feel we should give them any assistance. And you know, later on I was thinking about that. I don't think I said anything because I didn't know that much at that time. But later on I thought, what a terrible thing to do. Those people were starving because somehow they'd been persuaded to buy a colour TV and now their income, their income was going to paying the higher purchase to buy food. You know, we get it at transit. We sometimes get people from Middle Eastern background of certain religion and they'll turn up in transit in beautiful new cars. And we used to have the volunteers say to us, come on, Pastor Keith, you can't, uh, you can't give food to them. We just saw them turn up in a, in a brand new car. How can they possibly need help? But those volunteers didn't understand the culture of these people. The culture of these people was such as that they had to keep face. So the father, to drive to the, uh, to drive to the uh, place of worship on the Friday to the mosque, would like to arrive in a brand new car because it made people think that he was successful. Even though the only way they could afford that brand new car was to lease it. And those lease payments would take so much of their income that they didn't have enough money for food. You know, those women would come to transit not only not have enough money for food, they didn't even have enough money for personal items, didn't have enough money for nappies for their children. You know, that's a culture. You can't judge by what you see with your eyes. Jesus never judged simply by the superficial, by what he saw with his eyes. He looked deeper. He looked at the heart of what was going on. It also says that he would not decide by what he hears with his ears. Would not decide by what he hears with his ears. Do you remember the time when Jesus was invited by Simon the Pharisee to, uh, to have a meal? And Simon thought that he would humiliate Jesus. And so he got Jesus to sit down without even having offered to wash his feet or wash his face or his hands, which was an incredible insult. There Jesus is reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house and the other Pharisees are sitting around and they're snickering at Jesus. They're laughing at Jesus because he's dirty. He's a dirty person sitting at the table. They were humiliating him. And a woman comes in and she loosens her hair and she anoints his feet with oil and then she dries his feet with her hair. An incredible thing to do. I think I've preached on that before, but in the Middle East, if a Jewish person, if a Jewish woman went outside with her hair down, her husband could divorce her without any compensation. Even today in the Middle East, most women cover their hair because it's, it's offensive. 
It's incredibly offensive for women to walk around with their hair uncovered. And here's this woman. She uncovers her hair, something only prostitutes would do, and wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. You know, Simon is talking. They're snickering among themselves. They're saying, if Jesus knew who this woman was, he wouldn't allow her to touch him. Did Jesus respond to what he heard? Did Jesus respond to what they were saying about this woman? He didn't. Instead, he takes the focus off the woman. He insults Simon so that the woman can escape without being persecuted by them. But he refuses. He says, this woman has given thanks. She's poured this out. She's given this gift because she's freely received and she's freely given. She knows me. She's been forgiven. She's a precious child of God. You know, I was uh, listening to an evangelist about 25 years ago. And uh, he's quite a well-known evangelist. And he uh, was talking about when his life turned around. He said he was in high school and he said he was extremely badly behaved. He said he was a terror of the kid. And he said every year when he went up to the new class and he had an interview with his new teacher, the teacher would say, I've heard all about you. And they'd, they'd say, don't you behave like this in my class? And they'd just tell him off and put him down. But one year he said he, he went to a class in high school and the teacher looked up at him and he said, this teacher was pretty rough looking. You know, he had nicotine stained fingers. He had a beard. And he looked at him and he said, Michael, I've heard all about you. And Michael shuddered. And he said, I just want to tell you, I don't believe a word of it. I don't believe a word of it. And Michael said something happened to him. This teacher had heard all about him, but refused to believe it. And he said, my life changed from that moment onwards. He said, I became a different person because somebody didn't believe what had been said about me. Yeah, Jesus is like that. Jesus is like that. When Jesus was on the cross, people would have said terrible things to him. Did he believe it? Even when he was on the cross, he was crucified with two thieves and, and one of them was hurling abuse. Did Jesus respond to the abuse? Did he listen to what that man said? Didn't say a word. Didn't correct him. But the other thief, when he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus heard him. And responded to his heart. You know, it fascinates me that, and I only discovered this recently, and just the other day I was talking to somebody who'd actually been to Israel. And uh, during COVID, it was good listening to lots of other preachers. And I discovered from one preacher that, who'd been to Israel a lot, that when they crucified Jesus, uh, I always thought he was high up on a cross. But he said, no, it wasn't like that at all. The person being crucified was at eye level with those passing by. They often put the crosses next to a road and they bent their legs so that they couldn't touch the ground. And that's why later on they used to break their legs, but they didn't do it with Jesus. But the person being crucified was at eye level. And the reason they were at eye level was so that people could walk past and hurl abuse at them and spit at them and humiliate them. That's why they did it. Yet what did Jesus say? Did you respond to anything that was said to him? The only thing he said was, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You know, Satan and our own inner voice will sometimes accuse us. Before the Father, 
and he'll accuse us of all sorts of things. And you know those accusations. I'm not good enough. I'm too big a sinner. I failed again. And Satan will come and he'll accuse us before the Father and the Father. And Jesus will intercede and say, no, I'm not having any of it. I'm not listening to a thing that you're saying because this person believes in me and his sins have been wiped away by my blood shed on the cross. Jesus says, I won't believe a thing that's said about you. Then we come to the last bit. It says, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor. Israel was cut down because they ground the poor into the dust. But Jesus didn't. When Jesus came, so much of the heart of his message was actually about the poor. I don't know if you've seen that. If you look at Luke chapter 4 and you have a look at the original original mandate that Jesus reads out, which actually offended the Jews because he didn't read all of it, but never mind that at the moment. But he reads this about himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, the poor. In Luke 15, the Pharisees complained about Jesus. And why did they complain about Jesus? It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Yeah, when you go through the Gospels, it's for the poor and for the broken. The very opposite of what Israel was doing in the time when Isaiah was writing. He never ever ground the face of someone broken into the dust. He never rebuked someone who was crying out. Whenever someone called out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me, it was a prayer that he always answered. And it all flows from the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit anointed him. The Holy Spirit anointed him so that he would not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. You know, I believe this church is really on a good path because with Cavell Corner, your heart's going out to the poor. With your ministry in Uganda, your heart is going out to the poor. You're making those that are the, the least, the least rich, the most vulnerable, the most broken, you're making them a priority. And God will bless you. This church is a blessed church. Let's just open our hearts to the Lord as we pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, it's incredible to watch you walking through Israel and seeing how often it was the broken, the poor, the needy, the rejected, the oppressed, the re- those that nobody else liked or wanted that you spent your time with. And Lord, you are anointed with the same Holy Spirit that anoints us. So Holy Spirit, I pray for this church and for each one of us here that our hearts would truly go out to the broken and to the poor and to the wounded and to the oppressed and to the rejected, that those who nobody loves, those who nobody respects, that they be the ones that we'll be able to love 
and care for. So bless us, we pray. And bless this church. Bless the ministry of this church in every way. And we ask that in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.